Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 16 to 38, the word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, when the house of Israel lived in their own land, they defiled it by their ways and their deeds. Their ways before me were like the uncleanness of a woman in her menstrual impurity. So I poured out my wrath upon them for the blood that they had shed in the land, for the idols with which they had defiled it. I scattered them among the nations, and they were dispersed through the countries in accordance with their ways and their deeds. I judged them. But when they came to the nations, wherever they came, they profaned my holy name, in that people said of them, These are the people of the Lord, and yet they had to go out of his land. But I had concern for my holy name, which the house of Israel had profaned among the nations to which they came. Therefore say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols. I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers, and you shall be my people, and I will be your God. And I will deliver you from all your uncleannesses, and I will summon the grain, and make it abundant, and lay no famine before you. I will make the fruit of the tree and the increase of the field abundant, that you may never again suffer the disgrace of famine among the nations. Then you will remember your evil ways and your deeds that were not good, and you will loathe yourselves for your iniquities and your abominations. It is not for your sake that I will act, declares the Lord God. Let that be known to you. Be ashamed and confounded for your ways, O house of Israel." Thus says the Lord God, on the day that I cleanse you from all your iniquities, I will cause the cities to be inhabited, and the waste places shall be rebuilt, and the land that was desolate shall be tilled, instead of being the desolation that it was in the sight of all who passed by. And they will say, this land that was desolate has become like the Garden of Eden, and the waste and desolate and ruined cities are now fortified and inhabited. Then the nations that are left all around you shall know that I am the Lord. I have rebuilt the ruined places and replanted that which was desolate. I am the Lord. I have spoken and I will do it. Thus says the Lord God, this also I will let the house of Israel ask me to do for them, to increase their people like a flock 
like the flock for sacrifices, like the flock at Jerusalem during her appointed feasts, so shall the way cities be filled with the flocks of people. Then they will know that I am the Lord. Amen. Uh, Open your Bibles back to Ezekiel chapter 36. Uh, That's the passage we're going to be focusing on this evening. And uh, if you've got a service sheet when you came in through the door, you'll see an outline of the sermon, of what we're going to be saying from this chapter. Three points. So we begin, um, I think it's helpful always, when you look at a passage in, in the Old Testament of the Bible, it's helpful to remember that when we read the Old Testament, we are tracing a single story, a story of God's promises that he made to this little nation, the nation of Israel. And that's important because God's plan to fix the brokenness of this world and to fix the brokenness of our lives begins with the promises that he made through Israel. He promised to them that they would be a great nation that would be used to bless all the world. He promised that from them, would come a king who would establish the throne of God on earth and rule the kingdom of God forever and ever. He promised that that God himself would be living among them, that they would be his people and he would be their God, that the connecting point between God and man that had been broken would be restored in Israel as God lived amongst them in his temple. And all the Israelites believed at the time at the time of the Old Testament, that God's promises were all tied up to their capital city, to the holy city of Jerusalem. However, as we have been studying the book of Ezekiel, we have seen that there is one massive problem with these promises, and that is Israel herself. Because these people were wicked. And for hundreds of years, they rebelled against God and they did some of the most shocking things possible. And so God judged them. 600 years before Jesus, he sent the mighty Babylonian army to judge his people. And they came to the capital city. They came to Jerusalem and they took away most of its residents as prisoners, off into exile into Babylon. And one of the guys they took was a a guy who was training to be a priest in the temple, a young man by the name of Ezekiel, who is the author of this book here. When the Babylonians first came, they didn't quite destroy Jerusalem, they didn't quite destroy the temple. So all the exiles in Babylon, including Ezekiel himself, they still believed that those great promises that God made to Israel would still stand as long as Jerusalem was standing and as long as the temple was there. But what we've seen in the book of Ezekiel is that that God is trying to wean these people off that city, to wean them even off the temple, because he is going to wipe Jerusalem out. He is going to destroy the city of Jerusalem. And then chapter 3, verse 21, it's it's the turning point in the entire book. It's the lowest point in the history of Israel. Chapter 33, verse 21, is the lowest point in the entire history of Israel. A messenger comes from Jerusalem, comes to Ezekiel, and says these devastating words, the city has fallen. Now, you have to realize how devastating that really was. 
not just for Israel, but for the world. Remember, these promises are going to be for the restoration of the world. All that's left of God's chosen people is just a ragtag bunch of exiles living in a shanty town by the rivers of Babylon. They have no king. They have no land. They have no temple. They have no assurance of God's presence. They have no safety. They have no security. And they have no hope. And yet, it's at this time that God opens the mouth of Ezekiel. And in Ezekiel chapter 33, all the way through to the end of this book, we've got two more studies left in Ezekiel. We get these amazing promises of restoration. How is God going to fix this mess? Well, that's what these chapters are all about. And I say that by way of introduction because all the promises that he made then, that he makes in these chapters, we know were fulfilled 600 years later in the person of Jesus Christ. You see, the whole point of having an Old Testament is that we would see the necessity of Jesus through the failure of Israel. Last week, we saw God's great promise that he's going to restore the kingship of Israel with he himself being the great shepherd king, a promise that was fulfilled in Jesus, who is the good shepherd, the leader of the church, and the ruler of the nations. And this week, we're going to look at how God is going to restore something that's the most important thing that was lost during the fall of Jerusalem. It was the most devastating thing that was lost during the fall of Jerusalem. And that was his reputation. Now that might sound a bit odd to you, but I want to show you today how God's work to restore his reputation, which is what Ezekiel 36 is all about, I want to show you how that is one of the most loving things he can do for a world that is in rebellion against him. So let's look at it. First point then, God's reputation ruined. Um, Verse 16, have a look at verse 16. The word of the Lord came to me, son of man, when the house of Israel lived in their own land, they defiled it by their ways and their deeds. Their ways before me were like the uncleanness of a woman in her menstrual impurity. So I poured out my wrath upon them for the blood that they had shed in the land, for the idols with which they had defiled it. So God begins by comparing Israel's sin to to being unclean. And by the way, don't get too caught up in the image of a woman in her menstrual uh, impurity. It's, it's an Old Testament ceremonial law. It was one of the many, many things that would make you unclean. It's nothing to do with being immoral, but it's one of the things that would make you ceremonially unclean. And so therefore, you couldn't be in the presence of God. You couldn't go to the temple. And God uses that as an illustration to describe how the whole nation was unclean. And therefore, he couldn't be in their presence. He had to walk out of them. Why? Because they were filled with violence. They were filled with idolatry. That's Israel's history. Ezekiel 22, we are told that um, they persecuted the poor. They were murderers. They they even sacrificed their own children to these foreign gods that they were worshipping. They were involved in all sorts of sexual immorality. They oppressed the immigrant. They oppressed the foreigners. They oppressed the homeless in their land. And despite God warning them for hundreds of years, God was warning them, stop doing that. Come back to me. Listen to me. Obey my word. They kept ignoring it. And so God had to stop it. He has to stop it. He poured out his wrath on them. He destroyed the city of Jerusalem. He scattered them off into foreign lands. 
But this presented God with a new problem. Because remember, God's purpose for Israel was that through them they would be a light to the world that would show the world what God is like. But now here they are, they're scattered off in Babylon, they're scattered off in foreign lands, and what are the nations saying about this God? Verse 20, this is what the nations are saying. These are the people of the Lord, and yet they had to go out of his land? They're mocking God. So much for for these people's God who promised them a land. Here they are in exile. He doesn't look very powerful. God's judgment on Israel was necessary if he is to be good and if he is to be a just God. But yet it was damaging to his reputation. It's kind of like, um, you know, I'm sure there's many examples you could think of out there, but it's kind of like if someone worked for a company and they were caught embezzling funds. They would would have to be punished, but it would also uh, have an impact on the reputation of that company. Or if you had a family member who was arrested because they did some horrendous thing, it would bring a sense of shame to the name of the family. And so, what is God going to do about this? How is he going to fix his reputation? Well, he's going to restore his people. He's going to fix them. And we'll see how in a moment. But we need to first of all realize why he's going to do this. Verse 21 to 23, they make it crystal clear, don't they? It's not because of them that he's going to act. It's not even primarily because he loves them. But the chief motivation, he does love his people, but the chief motivation for all that God does in restoring these people is the fact that he is concerned about his name. That is God's chief motivation for acting. He wants his name to be glorified. Now, we've got to wrestle with this. Because I'm willing to bet that for some of you here, even if some of you who call yourselves Christians, that kind of jostles with you a little bit. Isn't that petty? That's what God's saying here. Isn't that kind of petty that, that God is concerned about his reputation? Is it selfish that God is concerned more about his reputation than anything else? It's where we've got to be really careful. We've got to be careful that we don't think of God as just a larger version of me. So if we did this, if we were concerned about ourselves and, and our reputation and the glory of our name over and above others, that would be wicked. And it would be wicked for one big reason. It would be false. See, we are not the most important people in the universe. However, the most important person in the universe is God. And therefore, if God is to be God, his chief concern has to be himself. It has to be. If he, if he wasn't concerned about his own reputation, it would imply that there is something greater that he should be concerned about. And therefore, whatever that is, that would be God. God must exalt and praise and glorify that which is most exalted, most praiseworthy, and most glorious, namely himself. If he didn't, he'd be a fraud. But if I'm honest, I think the reason that we really struggle with this is not just because we kind of have a a poor understanding of the greatness of God, but we have a poor understanding of ourselves. 
we think that we're probably greater than we really are. We think that God should be concerned about us. It doesn't, it doesn't matter that we don't give any thought to him, but God should care about me. We have a kind of um, L'Oreal approach to ourselves. You know that shampoo advert? It's always risky when a, a follically challenged preacher quotes a shampoo advert. You know the advert, you're worth it. I'm worth it. God should save me because I'm worth it. The truth is, in God's eyes, we are filthy and unclean. Not just Israel, every one of us. Every one of us here have thought and said and did things, even this past week, that's detestable. And if we really knew what each other's hearts were like, we probably wouldn't want anything to do with one another. But we repress it. We forget it. We try and think that, that we're, we're greater than we actually are. We make ourselves look greater than we actually are. Make no mistake, there's absolutely nothing in you that God needs or wants. And don't distance God's concern for his glory as being opposed to his love. Because God's concern for the glory of his name doesn't look like our foolish selfishness. It looks like him as a humble Galilean peasant despised by men and crucified on a cross so that we could be forgiven. You see, when God seeks his glory, which he does, everything God does is for the primary aim of his own glory. When God seeks his glory, then there is hope for the world. God's desire for his reputation to be upheld, for his name to be magnified, is the most loving thing that he can do for us. It's all about him. It's not about us at all. And praise God that that is true. Let me show you why, our second point. God's reputation restored. See, not only do Israel, these great promises, not only do Israel need a new king, and they need a new land. We saw that in Ezekiel 34. God's going to provide that for them, for them. But they themselves need to be made new. The problem with Israel is Israel. In fact, the problem with mankind is mankind. Israel is like a, a picture of the world in rebellion against God. We are what's wrong with the world. We are the problem. And God himself needs to fix us and make us new if his reputation to be, is to be upheld and if there is to be any hope of restoration for us. And so what we get in these verses is a great description of how God makes people new. In other words, it's a great description here of what it looks like to be a Christian. And I hope this will encourage you especially if you're here maybe and you're struggling or, or maybe you're doubting, am I, am I really a Christian? I hope these verses will encourage you because I know the original hearers of these verses as they sat in that shanty town in the rivers of Babylon having lost everything needed to be encouraged that God would still be faithful to his promise. And so God is trying to take our eyes off ourselves and onto him because what matters is not us, but him. So what will he do to make his people new? Firstly, it begins with a cleansing of sin. Have a read there of verse 24. 
I will take you, God says to Israel, I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols. I will cleanse you. If God is to restore the honor of his name, he has to first of all cleanse his people from all their sin. Notice that the the repeated refrain in these verses, and it's not just in these verses, but all throughout Ezekiel 33 to 48, there's a repeated refrain, I will, I will, I will. And what's the reason? So that you will know that I am the Lord. I will do it so that you will know that I am the Lord. And whilst these exiles, they, they did actually return to their own land. They're cleansing this promise of of being cleansed from their uncleanness, from their sin, and our cleansing today from sin wasn't achieved until 600 years later. That is the reason that Jesus came. That is what he did by his death on the cross, and he did it by taking the punishment that my sin deserves so that I could be clean, so that I wouldn't have to worry about facing any judgment from God. He becomes all that is filthy and wrong with me, and I get all that is pure and good and righteous about him. That's the gospel. I sin, he cleanses. I rebel, he atones. How do you know that that's happened to you, that you have been cleansed from all your sin? How do you know that that this promise is true for you? 1 John chapter 1 verse 8. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. So if you think you're a pretty stand-up person, you're deceiving yourself. The truth is not in you. But, John says, if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You see, change, renewal, cleansing. It all begins with repentance. That's what Jesus gives. That's what he's achieved. A chance to to wipe the slate clean in God's eyes. That is what he offers to all. That's the gospel. Why? Was it, did did he offer that to me? Did I accept that because because I was desirable to God? Is there anything in, in you that was desirable to him that he needed? Was it because God thought, hey, you know, that Andy Robertson, you know, he does muck up every now and again, but he's a really stand-up guy. I'd love to have him in my kingdom. Not at all. There is absolutely nothing in us that God, that is desirable for God. Nothing. Nothing that he finds attractive. All there is is dirt. We are a stiff-necked, rebellious people who give no thought to him, who feed our selfish desires, who consciously or either subconsciously hate him and his rule in our lives. God owes you and me nothing but judgment. We deserve hell, all of us, you nice, respectable people. That is what we deserve. When it comes to, to salvation... The only thing that we bring to the equation is the dirt of our sinful hearts. That's it. He does everything else. 
He does it all. He will cleanse us. He will save us. He will suffer for our sin, and He will forgive us. Only Him, never us, never us. And He does it because He is great, not because we are great. Because He is concerned for His glory, not our glory. Now, do you see how wonderfully liberating a truth that is? That's grace. God does everything. We do nothing. Can you imagine, even if it was just a little bit down to us and and how well we did, um, we would either be in a state of constant fear. Have I done enough? Does God accept me? Will God still still like me? Or we'll be in a state of self-righteous arrogance. Look at what I've done for God. Look at how great I am. But all the freedom to know that it's not about me Oh, the security, the safety to know that it's about him. My salvation is not dependent upon my faithfulness, but his faithfulness. And the only reason that we haven't been wiped out in a flood of judgment is because of his unrelenting commitment to his promise to uphold the honor and the glory of his name. And what glory that gives to his name when he takes rebellious sinners like you and me and he makes them his beloved adopted children. When God glorifies and honors his name, we are the beneficiaries. When he is glorified, we are saved. That truth is the only thing that can free you from self-righteousness and give you the confidence that God will always love you no matter how many times you muck up. Secondly, what we see here, that God gives us a new heart with new desires. See, Jesus' death on the cross to, to forgive us of our sins wasn't just to wipe the, the slate clean. It wasn't just to do that. He wants to make everything about us new. And what Ezekiel talks about here is not just pointing to the work of Jesus, but to the work of his Holy Spirit. The reason we were cleansed from sin was so that God could begin a process in our lives of making us new. Verse 26, look at what Ezekiel says, and I will give you a new heart, what God says, sorry, through Ezekiel, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You see, sin is not, whenever we do something wrong or whenever we ignore God, it's not just an external act. It's an internal problem that requires a a radical change in the very nature of our being. In fact, in in John chapter 3, Jesus, who's very much got Ezekiel 36 in his mind, speaks to a religious leader and calls this change new birth. That's what we need to be born again, to be made new. We are glorious ruins in dire need of restoration. And when you accept the forgiveness that Jesus offers, God gives you his Holy Spirit to begin that process now. So God himself is now with you, and he is working in your heart to change you. To use Ezekiel's language, he has taken your heart from a heart of stone and made it into a heart of flesh. What does that mean? It means that that, that God's Holy, without God's Holy Spirit, your heart is dead to God. In other words, it's, it's cold. It's unresponsive. 
You have no affection for him. Your intellect is not bent towards him. The natural human being has no care for God. And that is what we are like. That is the fundamental problem with the world. We have no affections for our creator. But if you trust Jesus, and and if you really do have his Holy Spirit working in you, that changes. You, You start to become more sensitive to God. You become more aware of him. You, you, you want to learn from him. You want to know him. You want to be with him. Your heart becomes fleshy. It becomes real. You have new desires. You have, you have a desire now to, to walk in God's ways and, and to obey his rules. So let me ask you here tonight. Do you love Jesus? Let me, let me rephrase that. Do you love him, but do you wish you could love him more? Do you really want to obey him and wish you could do it better? My brother and sister, that is not normal, that desire. Only God's Holy Spirit could bring about that desire. That's fleshy desire. And he will change you. He will. It's a slow painful process sometimes, and sometimes you can only see it with the hindsight and the help of others, but God's Spirit should be causing us to grow in holiness. Sometimes that takes time. It's like, you know, physical growth. You don't notice when you're growing. Sometimes you need uh, somebody to tell you that, like an elderly relative. Oh my, haven't, haven't you grown? And sometimes you need people in the church to tell you, you know, you're really growing in this area. You're doing well here. The, the job of the Holy Spirit is change. Change and renewal. His job is to, to graft us to Jesus, to reside in us as his temple, to give us the, the DNA of God himself so that we want to become more like our heavenly Father. You know that you're a Christian if you are wanting to and if you're working at obeying God's word. That's never just individual as well. It's a whole corporate element. Remember, this is not the restoration of an individual. This is the restoration of his people. And that's why in Ephesians, the Apostle Paul, the term he uses to describe the church is to call it the new humanity. The new humanity of God. The process of restoration is happening right now here in this church. We as a church should be molded to be like Jesus And what would that new humanity look like? Well, loads of stuff, but in Ephesians 4, it looks like being united around God's Word. It looks like people who love selflessly. It looks like speaking the truth, not being angry. It looks like not stealing, being honest, building each other up through what you say, not being bitter or slanderous. It looks like kindness and compassion. It looks like a husband loving his wife. It looks like a wife loving her husband. It looks like children obeying their parents. It looks like unyielding forgiveness. That is what fleshy hearts look like. That is the new humanity of Jesus, the restoration that is happening right now. The Holy Spirit changes us to walk in obedience to him. And you see, how is all that tied into God's concern for his holy name? Well, God has dared today to stake his reputation upon his church. And when we live like that, when we are distinct from the world in holiness, 
we proclaim the greatness of His name. Third and final aspect of this new humanity, this renewed people, is a new sense of shame. Have a look at verse 31. God says this to Israel, Then you will remember your evil ways and your deeds that were not good, and you will loathe yourselves for your iniquities and your abominations. It is not for your sake that I will act, declares the Lord. Let that be known to you. Be ashamed and be confounded for your ways, O house of Israel. If you've been renewed by God, it's not just a desire to obey His commands you should feel. You should feel a sense of shame at sin. Fleshy hearts feel the shame of sin. And it's not the shame of getting found out or getting caught. It's not the shame of self-righteous, self-pity. It's the shame of knowing how you've treated God in your sin. Have you ever felt that? Have you ever just, you know, you just hate your sin. You hate it. Sometimes it just feels like it's controlling. Have you ever felt you could push a button that would stop you sinning? You hate it because you don't want to treat God that way. You wish you could obey him better. And again, if that's you, that's not normal. Because hearts that are stone, that are dead to God, don't care about how they treat him. But when the Spirit is working in someone's life, they feel that sense of shame. And let me tell you, spiritual growth as a Christian is about becoming more aware of just how wicked you really are and just how loved you really are at the same time. You know, this chapter is so helpful. This is what the Spirit does. The Holy Spirit of God, this is what He does. And it's so helpful because there is so much dodgy teaching about the Holy Spirit that is out there in the church, in good evangelical churches. Let me read to you this. This is from a very popular evangelistic course that many churches use. It's got many good things about it. People have come to know Jesus through it, and I think that's great. But their teaching on the Holy Spirit is very unhelpful and potentially very damaging. Let me read to you what they say. They say this, that when the Spirit comes through you, sometimes it's literally like as if a gale has blown through a room. Sometimes people find it easier not to stand any longer but to lie down. Sometimes you see people breathing in deeply, like they're breathing in the Spirit of God. Just so you know, that's not right. When the Spirit comes to you, you will feel a deep sense of shame for sin, and you'll have a desire to obey God's Word. And the only reason I'm saying that is because so many people have had their confidence shattered with teaching like that. They felt they've not got God's Spirit or somehow God's Spirit goes away and then then comes back again because they've not had these weird experiences that aren't in the Bible. Look, you know God's Spirit is working in you when you feel that shame at how you treated God. That's why Jesus says in John 16, the Holy Spirit will come and what will He do? He will convict the world concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment. He convicts. And do you see, the most supernaturally powerful thing that the Holy Spirit can do in your life is that, to convict you of sin and to to draw you to want to obey and to love Jesus. That's incredible. That's, That's a stone heart becoming a flesh heart. That's somebody who was dead being brought back to life in Christ. 
And when he is with you, he won't leave you. And therefore, if the church is to be revived by God's Holy Spirit, and now that's our prayer. We want God's Holy Spirit to revive the church in this nation because the church in this nation is dying. We want it to be revived. What will that look like? It will look like broken people, broken by their sin, confessing it to Jesus, and living in accordance with his word. That is spiritual renewal. That is spiritual revival. That's the work of God's Holy Spirit. Thirdly, God's reputation recognized. We're out of time. Let me just draw you to our final point because I want want to end with this because the promise that, that God gives here, I think, points beyond our own time all the way through to the end of time. In verses 33 to 38, God tells the exiles that the restored land that he's going to give them a land that will become like the Garden of Eden, like the time when God lived with humanity and there was no sin and shame and there was no evil. At that time, the nations will then recognize who God is. His name will be honored. Not only that, verse 37 to 38, they're quite odd. They describe the fact that they will be like a great multitude of people Uh, like the flocks that would gather at the temple during sacrifice season. And there was loads of sheep that would gather during that time because there was a lot of sin in Israel. And they would bring their sheep, their sacrifices for their sin. And God says, when you saw all those sheep, I'm going to have a greater amount of people who will see me and worship me. This is the promise that will be fulfilled at the end of time when people from every tribe and every tongue and every nation will worship God. Everyone will know his name will be upheld. Not so much the name Yahweh given in the Old Testament, but the name of Jesus. There will come a time of complete restoration when Jesus' reputation will be recognized worldwide. The Apostle Paul says in Philippians 2, Jesus has been given the name that is above all names, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. When he is exalted before everyone, this world will at last be fixed. We will be renewed. We will be completely restored and all the shame of sin, everything will be gone forever as we are in God's new creation. So you struggling, doubting exile, because you are an exile if you're a Christian, you're waiting for this heavenly home, take heart, for Jesus will see your salvation through to the end. He who began a good work in you will finish it. He staked his name on it. Not because we are great, but because his name is great. Let's pray. Father, we glorify and exalt your name. There is nothing in us that is desirable. Nothing in us that you need or that is good. Father, if we have trusted in Jesus, we have been saved But that has not been for our sake that you acted to save us. But for the sake of your holy name, which we have profaned with our sin. Father, we praise you. 
that when we come to follow Jesus, you do not abandon us like orphans, but you give your Holy Spirit to work in our hearts to change us, to be more like Christ, to be obedient to his word, to be united to one another, to be united to God, to be ashamed at the sin that had separated us from you. Thank you that your Holy Spirit does not leave us and he is with us. Thank you, Jesus, that it's all down to you and your work and not to us. Oh, we thank you and we praise you for that. We muck up all the time. We praise you for your unrelenting mercy and grace. We praise you that you honor your name because when you are glorified, we are saved. And we praise you for that. Help us as a church to be a spiritual church, a church that convicts of sin and, and, and encourages obedience to the Word of God, a church of love and unity. Father, we pray that you would revive the church in our land by awakening people to their sin and by drawing them to wholehearted obedience to your Word. We pray this in the name of Jesus.